it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of All Crime No Cattle. I am Shay, and with me, as always, is the Bone Lady, Erin. Hello. And I know it's been a little bit, but we've been dealing with some issues of sickness. Erin's been sick a little bit. I've been traveling for work and some other various life events that have kept us from podcasting. But we appreciate you guys sending out your messages of support and encouragement. It really means a lot. But we're back. We got another episode coming for you. But first, we need to talk about a fundraiser that we're doing over on our Facebook discussion group. And there's a couple of different ways that you can enter for this. And the winner of the contest will receive a ACNC bundle of merch that we're going to put together for you guys. And they will also be able to introduce an episode of the show. And how you enter is basically you're going to have to go and either do one of three things. You're going to need to go and donate $20 or more to the El Paso or Dayton Victims Funds. And those are found on the GoFundMe accounts that we posted on our Facebook discussion group post. Two, you can go and write a postcard to the El Paso students who have just started school and need some words of encouragement. And it's really nice to go and write one of these postcards you know, some positive feelings and things that you can send these students as they're starting school, that would be very much appreciated. The third thing you can do is go and donate your blood to local donation centers. As long as you live in the U.S., you can go to bloodhero.com and find a blood drive or donation center near you and schedule your appointment. Whichever one you choose to do, just screenshot it, document it, email it to us at allcrimenocattle at gmail.com. And you will be in to win a prize as long as you are in by September 1st. I believe that's the cutoff date is, right? Yeah, but I'm sure we'll end up extending that. Okay. Well, it's coming up close. I think that's Sunday. So, you know, get it in soon. Try and do that. It would mean a lot. Uh, I know to the victims of both Dayton and El Paso. And it'd be really cool. Yeah, so be sure to go to our Facebook group. It's called the ACNC Posse Discussion Group. 
It's the pin post right now, and it'll give you all of the links so you can handle it pretty efficiently. And thank you so much for helping out El Paso and Dayton. Yeah, that's right. I think it'd be really cool. Well, with no further ado, are you ready to get into this episode? I am. As always, let's go ahead and go over our sources real quick up top. The first is the Bangor Daily News. Nick Sambitas Jr. has several articles about this case. He covered this from 2005 up until the present as well. So we're going to be drawing from several different articles that he wrote. We used court documents from the Texas Court of Appeals. Then there was the investigation discovery TV show called Nightmare Next Door, season 10, episode 2, entitled The Unwelcome Wagon. And finally, our main source for this is a book called A Poisoned Passion by Diane Fanning. She worked very closely with family members, investigators. There are all sorts of transcripts that you can read in this book. She accessed documents that were otherwise not released to the public. She did an incredible amount of research to put this story to paper and obviously spent a lot of work doing this. And there's nowhere else to go to get this information. And if you read this book, she really details just this shocking dysfunction within this family. So highly recommend that A Poison Passion by Dalian Fanning. You can find it anywhere, including Amazon. So if you're interested in this case at all, highly recommend you go and check out that book. All right. Sounds good. And finally, thank you to Shannon, who recommended this case to us almost a year ago. Our episode today is set in a new city and one that I have a little connection to. When I first moved to Texas from Alaska, the first town we lived in was the city of San Angelo, although I only lived there for about six months or so before moving to the DFW area. San Angelo is a town of about 120,000 people. Although it's actually located in the geographical center of Texas, it's still considered a West Texas town in both climate and culture. It's semi-arid, the economy is built around livestock and oil, and it's generally considered one of the most politically conservative areas of Texas. In 1867, a small frontier town was settled across the river from the frontier military post Fort Concho. The settler Bartholomew DeWitt named the town Santo Angela after his wife Carolina Angela, who had died the year before. The town's name eventually shifted over the years to San Angela. Then, in 1883, the town applied for a post office, but was denied on the basis that San Angela is grammatically incorrect in Spanish. It should either be Santa Angela or San Angelo. Townsfolk settled on the second, and that's how San Angelo officially got its name. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. We've had a lot of cases like this where, like, how the town got its name is this, just like this really weird story. Well, t you know, Texas is a very strange frontier republic. And a lot of these uh, formations of these cities take on that experimental naming process. Yeah. A Maine-born young man named Michael Severance would eventually call San Angelo his home. Michael was born in Wynn, Maine on July 20th, 1980 to Leslie and Valerie Severance. His younger brother Frank was born a couple years later, and his family would continue to grow, adding two additional stepsisters and a stepmother later as well. Growing up, Michael loved sports, especially racing, which would be a passion that would last his entire life. Michael finished high school at the Lee Academy in the town of Lee, Maine, and joined the Air Force just like his father. 
1998, he got stationed at the Dias Air Force Base in Abilene, Texas, about 90 miles northeast of San Angelo, and of course, across the country from where he grew up in Maine. That's, that's quite a bit of ways. Oh, yeah. While in Abilene, Michael grew to love the great state of Texas and even got pretty good at two-stepping. Oh, really? He yeah. was a two-stepping dancer, That's so right. After 9-11, Michael was deployed several times to places like Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, and Kuwait and served well, his character and leadership eventually getting him promoted to the rank of staff sergeant. In the winter of 2003, something happened that would irrevocably change Michael's life. That night, Michael went to a bar in Abilene to blow off some steam, and that's when he met a woman named Wendy Davidson. Wendy was born in San Angelo to Lloyd and Judy Davidson on July 23, 1978. Her brother Marshall was born the following year. Wendy loved caring for animals and knew she wanted to be a veterinarian from an early age. After high school, Wendy attended Angelo State University. Two years later, she was accepted into the competitive College of Veterinary Medicine at Texas A&M. During the summers, Wendy worked at a vet clinic back home in San Angelo owned by businessman and retired veterinarian Terrell Sheen. Sheen was a close family friend, and he'd been a powerful figure for the Davidson family. Not only did he hire Wendy for hands-on experience at his vet clinic, but he also hired her brother Marshall to work maintenance on his rental properties, and later even hired Wendy's and Marshall's father, Lloyd, as a contractor. Terrell Sheen owned a huge ranch, the Four Sevens Ranch, out in Grape Creek, Texas, and he was so close to the Davidsons that he allowed Wendy to keep her horse on the ranch and gave her a key to the front gate, allowing her to come and go as she pleased. While still in school, Wendy became pregnant, and her son Tristan was born in October of 2001. She graduated the following year, and Wendy and her new baby moved to Abilene so Wendy could begin her career as a vet at Abilene Animal Hospital. And it was one night while living in Abilene that Wendy Davidson met Michael Severance at the bar. And the two ended up going home together that night. A few weeks later, Wendy discovered she was pregnant. Oh, wow. Now, some sources claim that Wendy became pregnant after the first and only time the two slept together, a night that was frequently described as a one-night stand. Others suggest that they had been casually dating for a short time. Either way, 25-year-old Wendy and 23-year-old Michael now had to deal with the fact that they were having a child with a person that they barely knew. But they both wanted it to work, and they wanted to raise a family in the traditional way. Within a few months, Wendy and Michael decided to get married. Soon, Michael came to visit Wendy and meet her family in San Angelo. Her parents, Lloyd and Judy, were less than enthused with him. And their initial distaste for Michael only grew when Wendy told them that she was pregnant and they were getting married. Now, it's not clear at all in any of the sources as to why, but Lloyd and Judy hated Michael pretty oh. much on sight. Really? Yeah, there's not a conversation or an argument or any even particular traits Michael had that can be pointed to as the reasons or explanation for their dislike. It seemed completely irrational. And it only seemed to get worse over time. They even pestered Wendy constantly with their complaints about him. But the new couple decided that they would move forward with the marriage with or without her parents' approval. Wendy began making plans for her greatest dream, to open her own vet clinic in her hometown of San Angelo. 
Her father's employer and now longtime family friend Terrell Sheen stepped in to help once again. He bought an old clinic that had a small living area that the family could live in and rented the facility to Wendy at a great deal. Lloyd and Judy helped with the rest, spending thousands of their own money in fixing the place up. In September of 2004, Wendy gave birth to a baby boy, the couple named Shane, after one of Michael's friends. Less than two weeks later, Wendy and Michael were married in a small ceremony. The newlywed couple, Tristan and baby Shane, soon moved into the living quarters in Wendy's new veterinary clinic, Advanced Animal Care, on Sherwood Way in San Angelo, Texas. So they're living at the the veterinary clinic? The way I understand it, it's like a big house. Part of it is a veterinary clinic. And then there's a small back area that Wendy, Michael, and the two kids could have a space. It was not exactly the most ideal situation, but it was comfortable. And, of course, they could live at the same place that they were renting the clinic at. So it was a really great deal for them. Yeah, it's a situation of convenience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, both of us love animals. And uh, growing up, we wanted to be veterinarians. So I can I can relate. You're trying to live out your dream and take care of animals and be a veterinarian. Exactly. You got to sacrifice yeah, a little. That's cool. Yeah. And, you know, exactly like you're saying, they now had a, a new baby and a brand new clinic to open. And Michael still had to drive that 90 miles to report for work back at the base in Abilene. Yeah. So the next few weeks were very stressful, very intense, but it seemed that Michael was taking everything in stride. He was an excellent father to his new baby son and was already a doting father figure to Tristan, who was three by this time, so much so that the boy started calling him daddy. In October of 2004, the vet clinic finally opened its doors. It seemed like everything was coming together for the young new family. A few months later, Wendy and Michael began making plans to visit Michael's family in Maine. Michael bought the airplane tickets and they were set to leave on Sunday, January 16th, 2005. Michael was thrilled to bring his new son, stepson, and new wife to meet his family and friends and to see his hometown. But early on the morning they were supposed to leave, Wendy called Michael's family and said that Michael had disappeared the night before and she didn't know where he was. Wendy explained that Michael and her had had a date night on Friday the 14th, two days before they were supposed to leave for the trip to Maine. They had dinner at Buffalo Wild Wings and went dancing at a local club called Graham Central Station. They even had babysitters for the kids, so it was a nice evening, just the two of them. The next day, Saturday, Wendy worked at the clinic during the day while she said Michael slept in. She had last seen him that afternoon before she left to have dinner at her parents' house that evening. When she'd returned Saturday evening, Michael was gone, she said, and she hadn't seen him since. Hmm. That seems a little fishy. Yeah, it's definitely a little strange. Well, later on Sunday, with still no sign of Michael, Wendy went to the San Angelo Police Department and filed a missing persons report. She also contacted Michael's superiors at the Dias Air Force Base and informed them that her husband was missing. However, there wasn't anything the agency could do at that moment, since Michael was still technically on leave for his trip to Maine, and he wasn't expected back until the 24th. The next morning, on Monday, the San Angelo Police Department began looking into Michael's disappearance. Detectives came to question Wendy at the clinic and to take a look around, 
Wendy told the detective that Michael had been acting strangely recently, drinking heavily and going out a lot. She said that he hated his job with the Air Force and didn't want to be deployed again. Nothing of Michael's was missing from the living space, not clothes, not luggage, not even his wallet. Michael's truck was still there too, which was strange in of itself because he'd had an appointment to take his truck into the mechanic on Saturday so he could have some work done on the truck while he was in Maine. Inside the truck, detectives found Michael's cell phone. There were no signs of a struggle or foul play either in the truck or around the clinic. It was as if Michael had just disappeared. Well, doesn't that mean that either he just ran off or someone close to him is involved? Those are definitely two of the main theories, two of the main questions that were at the beginning of the investigation. Did something bad happen to Michael? Is he hurt somewhere? Or did he desert the military and his family? But we didn't see any blood or there wasn't a break in or, you know, like there's no kind of like sign of a struggle. No, it's like he fell off the faces of the earth. You know, his cell phone, his wallet is there, all of his clothes. Nothing is missing. Meanwhile, Wendy agreed to a search of her laptop at the clinic. The hard drive was copied and the contents were sent to the lab for analysis. The police checked with local motels, rental car agencies, bus and airlines, but there was no record of Michael Severance anywhere. None of his credit cards had been used since his disappearance, and there was no money missing from their checking accounts. So it's like you just said, he just vanished. Yes. And here's something additional that makes this situation even more fishy. On January 18th, just two days after Michael was reported missing, Wendy did something rather unexpected. She visited an attorney and filed for divorce, citing irreconcilable differences. Well, that's weird. In addition, she filed a restraining order that disallowed any communication or contact with her missing husband. Again, very strange. Very strange thing to do immediately after your husband goes missing. It almost seems like you're not concerned about where your husband is. Yeah. Their whereabouts and if they're okay. Yeah. Finally, January 24th came around, the day Michael was supposed to report back for duty, and there was still no sign of him. He could now be officially considered AWOL, or absent without leave. For the Air Force, this meant that an official investigation into Michael's disappearance could begin on the grounds of desertion. In conjunction with the Sheriff's Office, the San Angelo Police Department, and the Texas Rangers, the Air Force's Office of Special Investigations, or OSI, formed a team to investigate Michael's disappearance. So we have all of these law enforcement agencies, as well as the Air Force's OSI, kind of all working together to try to figure out where Michael is. Yeah, right. So it seems like the investigation really ramps up at this point. Yes, absolutely it does. The team began by searching a two-mile area around the clinic by foot and by air, looking for any sign of the missing airman, but nothing turned up. The team also began interviewing Michael's closest friends, family, and co-workers. Judy and Lloyd, Wendy's parents, told them that Michael hated the military and didn't want to be deployed again. They thought that he had deserted his post and his family and had run off to Canada. And these are the parents that really despised Michael, right? Yes, 100%. And Wendy agreed with them, adding that Michael didn't want to be deployed again and he had often spoken about deserting. Is there an opinion from Michael's parents at this point, or? 
Michael's family has no idea what's going on, and they know that something bad has happened. Okay. Um, another thing that Wendy's parents helpfully brought up was maybe he just ran off and killed himself. Oh, wow. Okay. Which is something, again, strongly that Michael's parents say there's no way that that happened. Interesting. Yeah. So it seems like there's a really strong dichotomy between the two opinions of Michael in this situation. Oh, absolutely. Michael's friends and fellow airmen also denied that Michael would desert his post or his family. Contrary to Wendy, Judy, and Lloyd, no one thought Michael had ever shown signs of having a drinking problem or that he disliked his time in the Air Force. They agreed, though, that Michael and Wendy's marriage was strained and that Michael had even insinuated that he'd had thoughts about divorce. Weeks passed and Michael was still missing. The OSI was looking into the possibility that Michael had deserted, and if he had, there was the distinct possibility that a family member or friend knew of his whereabouts and was helping him avoid detection. That's pretty typical in any cases of desertion. Yeah, and if anyone knows about this kind of behavior, it's going to be OSI. Uh, We've talked about OSI a little bit before in our episode that was about San Antonio. They're as good as the FBI is, and they have a really huge track record of tracking people down who have this kind of behavior, and they would find them if this was the case, right? Absolutely. And so that's why they do special things in order to try to figure out where Michael is. Ooh, so we're going to find out about that. Yes. OSI investigators obtained authorization to install tracking devices on Wendy, Judy, and Lloyd's vehicles to see if they would lead them to Michael. The tracking device on Wendy's vehicle recorded one odd trip on February 27th to a remote location in Tom Green County. It didn't take long to identify the general area to which she had traveled. It was the Four Sevens Ranch, owned and operated by old friend of the Davidsons, Terrell Sheen. They wondered if Michael was hiding out somewhere on the ranch and if Wendy had gone to visit him. Investigators contacted Terrell, who agreed to a search of the property, but again, there was no sign of Michael anywhere. However, they were able to pinpoint the exact location at which Wendy had parked her car on the 27th. It was just next to a large stock pond on the ranch, a fairly large body of water that was stocked with fish every year for some leisurely fishing. It had a little boat dock with a rowboat still floating in the water. It was around this time that investigators completed their analysis of the contents of Wendy's laptop and discovered suspicious internet searches regarding the decomposition of a body in water. The searches were done in late January or early February after Michael had gone missing. So investigators arranged another little chat with Wendy. She explained calmly that she'd simply overheard talk about the searches going on around the clinic and knew that there was a small creek nearby. She'd simply been curious about the possibility of Michael's body being found there in the water and wanted to steal herself for such a terrible discovery, she explained. Of course. But as soon as they asked her about the Four Sevens Ranch, and in particular the large stock pond on the ranch, everything changed. Wendy became clearly agitated and nervous, even described as defensive the second the ranch was brought up. Yeah, because she had no idea she was being tracked. That's exactly right. Immediately after the conversation with investigators, Wendy got in her car and took off. But investigators were following her. I'll give you one guess as to where she was going. 
The ranch? Yep. Oh, she's, is she going to try and move the body or something? Well, Wendy was unlocking the gate to the 4-7's ranch when investigators pulled up. She explained that she had a horse on the property. You know, she needed to go in and care for her horse. That's why she was there. Yeah, her horse is a crime that she committed that she's trying to cover up. Mm. She then demanded an explanation as to why investigators were there. Oh, yes. How dare you show up here? They told her that they were in the process of searching the ranch and they were here to secure the premises and she needed to leave. So she left. But minutes after the confrontation at the 4-7's ranch, Judy, Lloyd, and Marshall received a frantic phone call from Wendy, who asked them to meet her at the Grape Creek Cemetery. There, Wendy told her family that she had discovered Michael dead back in January and had disposed of his body in the pond at the 4-7's ranch. Marshall, Wendy's brother, called the San Angelo Police Department and asked that detectives meet them at the cemetery. He told the officers to search the pond on Terrell Sheen's ranch from Michael's body. Wendy was crying in the back seat of her parents' truck. Investigators later recalled hearing her say, quote, I didn't kill him, but somebody did. I thought one of you did it, so I moved the body to protect you. I thought one of you did it. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, I guess you're going to tell us about that. Oh, yeah. Wendy was taken into the San Angelo Police Department for questioning, but she refused to say anything without an attorney. But her brother Marshall was willing to tell police what he said Wendy had told her family. On Saturday night, when she had come home from her parents' house, she said that she had found Michael's dead body in the clinic. Knowing that her family hated him and terrified that one of them had killed him, Wendy had dumped the body in the pond at the 4-7's ranch. She denied being the one to kill Michael. Did she explain the crime scene at all, or how he was found dead, or any kind of injuries he had, or... Basically, no. Okay. She just found him dead, and she put him in the pond. Well, good job, Wendy. You're not helping your own cause. If if she would have had some details, maybe that would help her cause. Basically, as soon as she admitted to her family that she had disposed of Michael's body... She lawyered up, and she never really spoke again about what happened when she found Michael's body. Ah, okay. Wendy was charged with tampering with evidence, the evidence, of course, being Michael's body. Her bond was set for $500,000, and she was arrested and transferred to the Tom Green County Jail. Early the next morning, officers met Terrell Sheen, and he gave them permission to search the ranch again. Hours later, after seven weeks of searching for Michael Severance, the underwater team discovered his body in the middle of the stock pond, clad only in boxer shorts. There were multiple stab wounds on the front and back of Michael's body. Cinder blocks, tire rims, a boat anchor, a large rock, and brake drums were all fastened to the body with fishing line, rope, bailing wire, and zip ties. Jeez. A total of 145 pounds of weight to hold down Michael's 155-pound body. It sounds like whoever dumped this body tried it several times and had to keep weighing the body down. Interesting that you should say that. Michael's body and all associated evidence went to the Lubbock County Medical Examiner's Office for autopsy. In total, Michael had been stabbed 41 times in the chest, stomach, and back. Careful analysis showed that the stab wounds were all post-mortem. So we don't have a definitive cause of death. 
Tissue and fluid samples were sent for toxicology testing, but the results were pending. You know, obviously that's something that takes a while. Back in Maine, Michael's family were informed that his body had been recovered. They were devastated, but the reality was they had known all along that there was no way Michael had abandoned his family or his job. There was a memorial service for Michael on March 11th at the Dias Air Force Base in Abilene. After his body was released and taken to Maine, there was another memorial service there that even the Maine governor attended. U.S. and Maine flags were flown at half-staff on the day of his funeral in several cities around Maine. Michael was awarded a commendation medal for his service posthumously, which his father Leslie accepted on his behalf. While in prison, Wendy spoke multiple times on the phone to members of her family. Transcripts of many of these phone calls can be found in Diane Fanny's book. Again, go read the book. It's very interesting. Well, I bet they are. Wendy usually complained about her situation and that her family wasn't doing enough to get her out of there. She spoke about her children and how they would inherit insurance policies and social security benefits now that Michael was officially declared dead. But there's something to me that was obvious that she didn't talk about. So let's pretend that you are Wendy Davidson. You got carried away. You ended up disposing of a body thinking you were helping somebody else out. But now you're under suspicion for committing a murder you didn't commit. What would be your main focus? Well, getting the truth out of who actually murdered this yeah. person. You'd be like, hey, we need to find the actual murderer. Yeah. Not once in all of the details and transcripts in the book or any of these other sources. Not once is it ever mentioned that Wendy ever asked those questions about Michael's death or wondered who killed him. Well, that's very telling. She also repeatedly mentions in the phone calls and letters to her family that she didn't really think that what she had done was all that bad. In fact, at one point she says, I think Michael would totally understand why I did what I did. No, I don't think he would. I mean, I don't understand it. I certainly don't think Michael would have understood it either. Right. On April 8th, Wendy's bond was dropped to $50,000, an amount she was able to post. Do we know why her bond was dropped? Basically, the Lubbock medical examiner did speak out to the media. He spoke to the Bangor Daily News specifically. They said that the bond had been set very high for what it was, which was a tampering with evidence charge, because they were probably assuming that there was going to be a murder charge backing it up. But then those toxicology tests and the autopsy results were taking so long they knew they couldn't just hold her indefinitely on this huge Trump, kind of like a, not a necessarily a trumped up charge, but it was very high for what the charge was. I see. Yeah. But it just so happened that the same day that she was able to post her bond, the toxicology results came back. The results showed that Michael had a combination of medications in his system. The first, phenobarbital a medication used to treat seizures and can be used for short-term relief of sleep disorders and anxiety for its calming effects. But Michael didn't suffer from seizures and had never been prescribed this medication. The second was a drug called Buthanasia D, which has as its active ingredients phenobarbital and phenytoin. Separately, these two drugs are also used to treat seizures. But there is only one use for Buthanasia D. It's used to humanely euthanize dogs in clinical settings and can only be acquired by a licensed veterinarian. Well, that seems pretty damning for our licensed veterinarian in this case. 
Yeah, you know, it really did. And in fact, investigators had seen these very medications at Wendy's vet office during their previous searches. They obtained another subpoena, this time for patient records and the controlled substances log at Wendy's clinic. Since opening the clinic in October, records indicated that the clinic had used over 10 milliliters of Buthanasia D, which is just about the amount that would be needed to kill a man of Michael's size. Further, they found evidence that at least some of the entries of the clinic's controlled substances log involving the same drugs found in Michael's system were falsified. For example, a document found in the trash can at the clinic showed that a chihuahua named Wheezy was administered phenobarbital to treat its seizures. However, Wheezy's owner said that Wendy had never given Wheezy phenobarbital. And according to a vet assistant at the clinic, another dog named Patience had passed away of natural causes while at the clinic. But Wendy had told the owner that the dog needed to be euthanized and had logged a dosage of Buthanasia D. So basically, it looks as if she's doctoring medical records to make excuses for why these medications would be missing from the clinic. Well, with this information in hand, Wendy was again charged with tampering with evidence for doctoring the controlled substance log and altering patients' records. On May 24th, a grand jury was called to consider the charges against Dr. Wendy Davidson. The charges for tampering with evidence were confirmed, along with another indictment, homicide. Wendy was once again released on bond ahead of her trial, but she wasn't done breaking the law quite yet. After being postponed quite a few times, the trial was set for October 16, 2005. About a month before the trial was set to begin, after midnight on August 20th, the San Angelo Police Department received a phone call about a little boy wandering around the parking lot of Buffalo Wild Wings crying out for his mother. It was Tristan, Wendy's oldest son, who was about four years old at the time. Officers went to the clinic to find that no one was home. They left a message for Wendy, who rushed in, saying that she had just left her son alone for a few minutes while she made a quick run to Walmart. Unfortunately for Wendy, officers had seen her leaving the dance club, Grand Central Station, moments before. She'd left her four-year-old son alone while she went out drinking, and he had panicked, left the clinic, and rode his four-wheeler across five lanes of traffic before winding up at the Buffalo Wild Wings searching for his mother. Oh, poor Tristan. Yeah. Wendy was once again arrested and charged, this time with child endangerment. Lock her up. Well, now it was time for the trial, and investigators had worked hard to develop their theories as to what actually happened to Michael Severance. The following is their best idea about what went down as laid out by Diane Fanning in A Poisoned Passion. The strain between Wendy and Michael was noticeable by many who knew them, and things were even worse when taken into account how badly Wendy's parents seemed to despise her new husband. A divorce would be messy, and custody issues would be problematic. What if Michael decided to move back to Maine and try to take Shane with him? And there was that $500,000 life insurance money that Wendy would be entitled to if Michael was out of the picture. Now, Wendy claimed that Michael had slept in that Saturday morning, that she had seen him in the clinic that afternoon. She said that she had discovered Michael's body when she had come back from her parents' house that night. However, Wendy was the only one to claim seeing Michael alive that day, and he had missed his appointment to take his truck into the mechanic. 
That's because by Saturday morning, Michael was most likely already dead. Wendy and Michael had gone out the night before to dinner and dancing and had babysitters for both of the children, so they were all alone. When they got back home, Wendy probably put tabs of phenobarbital in Michael's drink. It wouldn't have been enough to kill him, but it would have rendered him unconscious. After he went under, she injected him with a syringe of Buthanasia D. Michael would have been dead within minutes. She got Mike's truck and backed it up to the clinic. She pulled his body into the back of the truck, along with some rope, fishing line, and cinder blocks or other heavy objects. She drove to the stock pond on Terrell Sheen's Four Sevens Ranch. She loaded Michael's body with weights and dumped him into the pond, either by rolling him off the dock or by using the small rowboat that was docked there. Then she went back to the clinic and went to sleep as if nothing happened. As the investigation into Michael's whereabouts heated up, Wendy might have gotten nervous that maybe she hadn't covered her tracks properly. That's when she logged onto her laptop and started researching how bodies decompose in water. She must have realized her great folly. Michael's body, now submerged for over a week, would start to be filling up with gas and would begin to rise to the surface of the pond. Oh no. She also must have realized that the few items she'd used to weigh his body down wouldn't be enough to counter the buoyancy of those gases. So she grabbed some old auto parts, some more cinder blocks, anything else she can get her hands on, along with a knife, and went back to the ranch. So this is where all the stab wounds come from. Yes. She was able to drag Michael's body from the water, perhaps using the boat and oar to pull and push his body up to the bank. She then took out her knife and stabbed her husband's body over and over again, hoping to release the gases that had accumulated. She stabbed him in his back, flipped him over, and kept stabbing him in his chest and abdomen, 41 times in all. Next, she began attaching more weight to Michael's body. She then rode out to the far end of the pond, away from the dock, and dumped his body back into the water. Later, when she realized that her searches on the laptop would be turned up by investigators, she made up her story about worrying about Michael being found in the creek behind the clinic. So that's why she was so cool, calm, and collected while she was having that conversation. She knew that they were going to find those searches, and so that's why she came up with this other story. She's so sick, dude. Yeah. I can't even imagine going back there and hauling his body out, stabbing him, and retying him with all these weights to weigh him back down. That is so evil. Yeah. And most likely the tracking devices on that date in February 27th, that might have been the date where she went and did this. Although it's not, you know, we don't know that for sure, but at least it shows that she was going back and checking on his body. And that's what that tracking device registered. Yeah. Finally, it was October 16th, the day of the trial. Wendy's defense team began by filing a motion to suppress the evidence gleaned from the tracking device the Air Force OSI had attached to her vehicle, showing her making the trip to the pond at the 4 Sevens Ranch. The motion alleged that the tracking device had been illegally installed. You see, the U.S. military can operate differently than law enforcement when it comes to investigating military-related offenses like desertion. The OSI hadn't needed a judge to sign off on the application of the tracking devices, which would have been mandatory for any civilian agency. Her argument was that the military was already looking into Michael's disappearance as a potential homicide at the time that the tracking devices were used, 
and were using the excuse that they were merely investigating a desertion in order to circumnavigate her constitutional rights against unreasonable search and seizure. Hmm. It seems like they're well within their rights to do that, to me. Well, you know what? Judge Tom Gossett agreed with you. He ended up ruling that the tracking device was placed in accordance with the Air Force rules and regulations, everything had been authorized properly through the appropriate military channels, and everything was done by the book. And Wendy herself had been the one to insist that Michael had deserted and fled the country to begin with. So, of course, they they had grounds to investigate the case as a military desertion. That's a great point. They're going (laughs) off of the wife's word. Exactly. And at the end of the day, there were multiple lines of evidence that led them to that pond on the 4 Sevens Ranch. So even if the tracking info was thrown out, I don't see what good that would have done her. She'd still mentioned dumping his body in the pond in front of the police, and Marshall had told the investigators to look at the pond. And then the body was also found there. Exactly. So, I mean, they'd already known about the ranch before when they were looking for Michael. I mean, it just doesn't kind of doesn't make sense what she was trying for. As soon as the judge dismissed the motion, Wendy Davidson broke down sobbing. If the trial moved forward and she was found guilty, she was looking at a sentence between 9 and 99 years in prison. She decided not to take her chances. She pled no contest to the charges against her. By pleading no contest, she wouldn't have to admit her guilt, and she probably hoped she would get a lighter sentence. The judge sentenced her to 25 years for the homicide of Michael Severance, along with two 10-year sentences for tampering with evidence to be served concurrently. For Michael's father, Leslie, the ruling was bittersweet. He told the Bangor Daily News, quote, We all kind of realize that this isn't going to bring Mike back. We're kind of glad it's over, this part of it. Surprisingly, it doesn't do anything for the pain. I think we got robbed again. She's in jail right now because she's guilty of murder. But she's never admitted to anything. I guess we didn't get a whole lot of answers we were hoping we would get. End quote. And that's kind of a part of why Diane Fanning's research was so important and integral in talking about this case is because there wasn't a trial. So there are questions that are still out there that we don't know the full details about. Nothing, you know, no additional information came out in trial or anything like that. So... That also means that Michael's family never really got the answers that they were looking for as well. Yeah, that's so unfortunate because sometimes that's the only way families get answers is through the trial. Well, yeah, absolutely. But Michael wasn't just in pain over the loss of his son. He was also greatly concerned for his grandson, Shane, who all during the investigation had been still under the care of Wendy Davidson while she was out on bail the very woman charged with murdering his father. The San Angelo Police Department said there was no reason to believe Shane was in danger in his mother's care, but it's hard to really understand that point of view, especially in light of, again, a lot of the information that Diane Fanning put in that book really makes you question that kind of decision. There was a long, bitter custody battle between Judy and Lloyd Davidson and Leslie Severance. While all of this was going on, while all of this waiting for the murder trial was going on, Leslie was trying to get custody of Shane. Eventually, Leslie was able to get joint custody of Shane with a lot of help from his community who raised funds for his travel and for the court fees. But it was this incredibly long and painful process that kind of baffled everyone involved because... 
Why are you allowing Wendy to have contact with the boy? And again, if you are interested in the custody battle, I would highly recommend you look at Diane Fanning's book because there is a lot of additional information that I just didn't have time to include. And I also want you to go look at her original research because she did such an excellent job. There are reasons why Leslie was concerned. And I think they were very valid reasons. And it was, you know, again, just another reason why this whole process was just so painful for the Severance family. As for Wendy Davidson, in February of 2007, her license to practice veterinary medicine was revoked. She was rejected early parole in May of 2019, so just a few months ago, and her next parole hearing will be in 2024. And there you go. That is the story of the murder of Michael Severance. Is there a reason why the sentence was so light? I mean, it well, seems... I mean, 25 years from for murder isn't exactly light. Yeah, but it also seems extremely premeditated. She went back to the crime scene. She, you know, uh, messed with evidence, messed with the body. I mean, it seems well, I mean, pretty damning. Uh, we've seen much greater sentences for people who've committed murder and not done all those things. Well, probably one of the reasons was because she got the plea deal. Yeah. I mean, she she chose to plead. No contest. No, no contest. And she was hoping, I mean, probably the only reason why she did that was she was hoping she would get a lighter sentence than if she went through and had a jury trial. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the whole reason why she did that. And it probably ended up working out well for her. But as far as I know, capital murder was never on the table for her at all. I'd never heard anything about there being you know, she was never indicted for capital murder charges. Well, it definitely seems premeditated to me. And I think that to awful. some degree, though, especially with her not talking, I mean, there was no way to necessarily prove that absolutely. So mainly it just seems like she was trying to get some kind of financial gain from this insurance policy and get rid of her husband who she did not like. Yeah. And again, we don't know exactly why she did it because she's never talked about it. And I'm sure she still denies that she had anything to do with his murder. Yeah, that's just so sad for his parents and for, you know, their kids. Mm-hmm, yeah. That's really unfortunate. It is really unfortunate. You know who else I feel got a real bum deal out of all of this? Terrell Sheen. Oh, really? The landowner that was the the veterinary friend? Yeah, I mean, he ha- he offered... Everybody in the Davidson family was employed by him at some point, right? I mean, yeah. he really helped them out of a lot of of financial struggles. And then when Wendy wanted to open her clinic, he offered to buy this clinic for her. He rented it to her at a very, very low price just to help her out. And then she repays all of this by putting a dead body on his property. Yeah, that, you know that's I mean? a good point. That's <laughs> a great know. point. He seems like a real nice guy. And, you know, a real uh, veterinarian uh, mentor for her and the family. And that's no way to repay them by putting your dead husband's body in his pond. That's terrible. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I know that I've mentioned it several times before, but but really, I can't say it enough. Go check out A Poison Passion by Diane Fanning. There is so much more information in that book. She did a really excellent job laying everything out. And so there's a lot more for you to discover about this case. Yeah, you know, that's that's what we do on the show. We we try and put you guys on to other great sources, authors, journalists, 
you know, investigative reporters that are doing all of this awesome work for you to go and subscribe to, check out, buy, all those kind of things. Because we, we aren't those people. We're just trying to put together this information and package it for you as kind of a summary. Well, very interesting story, Aaron. Thank you so much for bringing that to us. You did a great job keeping us up to date with everything that happened in this case. Very traumatic. Very interesting. And I do remember you talking about this case about a year and a half ago with some of our friends. And it hit me when you started naming those chemicals. And I was like, oh, it's the, veter- it's the veterinarian case. Yeah. Well, what's really interesting is um, the listener, Shannon, who emailed me about this case, I quickly just sort of Googled Wendy Davidson, her name. And one of the first things that popped up was a, I think it's called a meet, meet a convict or meet a prisoner.com, something like that, which is essentially a dating website. And she had a profile on this website, which I find to be just so bizarre that you are convicted of murdering your husband, but you're on like a prisoner dating website. Called Meet a Convict. It has since been taken down. Good. So, well, I'm actually really sad that I didn't go ahead and get screenshots back when it was <laughs> is still up because I remember just being in total shock about it. And it was one of the things I wanted to talk about upon bringing up this this episode, but it's not there anymore. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about a website like that. That's weird. It was a website called Meet an Inmate, and it's supposed to be like a pen pal program. But I mean, it's it's a dating website. Uh-huh. It's that's very clearly what it's what it's being used for. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I can't remember. I believe that there was like something about the kind of men that she wanted to oh. contact her, that kind of thing. This is all uncomfortable. While you're in prison for 25 years for murdering your husband. Just can you imagine no, being that kind of person? I don't like any of it. Yeah, it's bad stuff and just so sad. I mean, he was so young. He was 23. They had been married for a few months. They had known each other for a year. God, you remember back when we were in our early 20s? Could you imagine, like, all this happening? Ugh, awful. Yeah. Well, are you ready for something different? I am ready for some good news, that's for sure. Well, I got some for you. Some space news. Oh, okay. All right. Well, we'll be right back after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, We have some good news today. 
that is brought to you by Science Alert News. And this was done by a staff writer just this month in uh, August. So a couple of weeks ago, an amateur Texas astronomer was able to capture something quite phenomenal on a telescope and record it. If you haven't heard the news by now, something very large slammed into the largest planet in our solar system, Jupiter, and one of the only reasons we know about this is due to Texas resident Ethan Chappelle. Ethan had his telescopes and recording equipment set up at seemingly just the right time and moment on August 7th. His plan was to record the notorious Perseid meteor shower that was expected to be in a prime viewing window for his region of Texas. One of his telescopes happened to be directed at a target he was familiar with, the planet Jupiter. After reviewing his footage though, from that evening he discovered he recorded something extremely rare, which was a bolide impact of a meteor colliding with the planet Jupiter, and a bolide impact is a meteor that explodes mid-air as it enters a planet's atmosphere. Such impacts are not exclusive to the planet Jupiter, according to this article, and NASA has actually recorded 792 of these events since 1988. From the recording that Ethan posted to his Twitter account, you can see that the impact itself is extremely large. It's actually about an eighth the size of Earth. So an eighth the size of Earth puts this meteor at the size of a world killer as far as Earth is, is considered. So it's a big, giant, massive meteor and an asteroid that could have just destroyed Earth. But, you know, it's Jupiter, so it's much bigger. So Jupiter, being much larger than Earth, is susceptible to more of these meteor impacts due to its larger mass and resulting larger gravitational field. In a sense, Jupiter has probably absorbed many of the collisions with other interplanetary bodies that could have actually found their way to our planet. In some sense, we should be thankful for Jupiter being there and attracting these large bodies. I got a large body with a gravitational pull. No, you don't. You don't have a large body. Large celestial body. Oh, boy. I've been listening to too much Lizzo. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Lizzo. Well, NASA reports, quote, the rate of large impacts on Jupiter was thought to be between 2,000 and 8,000 times the rate of impacts of our blue planet, according to a 1998 study. 2,000 to 8,000 times. Crazy. Even as often as these types of impacts occur, the ability to record one of these bolide impacts is very uncommon. In fact, scientists have been looking for these sorts of impacts to study them more intensively so that we can look at what happens when such a, a meteor or asteroid would hit our planet. For this reason, the international astrological community was very excited to look at this rare amateur footage from Ethan's cameras. University of Queensland's professor of astronomy, Dr. John T. Horner, described it as, quote, totally breathtaking. To get a video like that, I've never seen anything like this before. Dr. Horner also told Science Alert News why these sorts of amateur discoveries are so important. Quote, it wouldn't be so obvious if you were looking through an eyepiece of the telescope. A lot of the time, these things will go unnoticed and unobserved. Half of them will happen on the far side of the planet, so there are a lot of things working against seeing these events." End quote. So the fact that they caught one and they can study it and look at it and see what the impact was like 
analyze it is going to give a lot of scientific data to NASA and other scientific agencies that look into these things. So congrats to Ethan for making this discovery and passing it along to people like NASA and other international agencies who are going to examine the footage. I think it's really cool when someone's passion and hobby transcends to the highest order like this and pushes the boundaries of discovery and science. And if you'd like to follow Ethan on Twitter, he has a bunch of other really cool footage that he does of the night sky. And you can find him on Twitter at Chappelle Astro. That's super cool. That's so weird that he just happened to be filming at that exact moment to get that footage. Yeah. And that he was the only one in the world to get it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. And also the big white flash of this meteor entering the atmosphere and exploding. It's almost as big as the big red storm of Jupiter. Wow. Yeah. Which is like three times the size of Earth or something. It's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that would have absolutely destroyed Earth if it if it hit us. It was fascinating, man, and and it's so scary too of of how often these things happen. Well, two thousand to eight thousand times more likely to hit up uh, Jupiter than Earth. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jupiter. Yeah. For your great size and beautiful body. <laughs> All that mass. <laughs> All right, guys, so since we've been on a bit of a break, an unplanned break, we will go ahead and read our patron names coming to you now. So we're going to be reading everybody's name, so it's going to take us a minute. So please stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at ACNC Podcast, on Instagram at All Crime No Cattle. You can join our Facebook page and get updates on when we post new episodes and some other little minor stuff as well. Or you can join our Facebook group, which is Bumpin'. We have almost a 1,000 members. And of course, remember to go check out the pinned post on there for the fundraiser for the victims of Dayton and El Paso shootings. And please try to enter if you can, because it's just a really great opportunity for us all to come together and pay our respects to those communities. Yeah, that's right. Go follow us in all the places. Also, big shout out to everyone who came out to the Fort Worth True Crime Fanatics meetup that was at the Silver Star Distillery, the Trinity River Distillery. Angela Hauk Walker put that on, and uh, we really appreciated it. Everyone had a great time. We did some interviews, shot some pictures. You can go check all that out on our Facebook page. But with no further ado, let's give some shout outs to our patrons. Let's start out with our Texas Rangers. Those are the most important. You know the crew. We got Lisa Layton, Matthew McConnell, Steph White, Serial Killer Sweets, Danny Jordan, Lisa Mann, Michelle Guess, Andrew Margerison, Kate Williams, Mel Thomas, Don Maloney. Thank you, guys. We really appreciate it. Next up, we have our small town sheriffs, and that's Ibro Kopic, Maria E. Parker, Jamie Hafar. Hauk Walker Originals that we just talked about. That's Angela and her husband, David. We appreciate it. Mickey N., Elizabeth Campbell, Ashley Parker, Janet L. Ward, Christina Miller, Rebecca, Laura Romaine, Molly Smith, Chelsea, Heather Nelson. Next up, we have our lone guns, and that's Jenny Cargill, Claire Jeans, Felix Torres, Quinn Harmon, Amanda Shondell, Megan, Lindsay Wiggins, Jules, Caitlin, 
Mary Bobbitt, Uber Chick Polish, Allison Moon, Danielle Thompson, Stephanie Roach, Patricia Wilson, Caitlin Hines, Lauren Miller, Diacandra Hapsari Subagayo, The Dark Poutine Podcast, Dan Clark, Brittany, Melanie Mendoza, Mary Alice Cafiero, Amy Derrick, The Nature vs. Narcissism Podcast, Gerilyn Carmichael, Colette Strawbridge, Amanda Garza, Amy McMahon, Julia Essen, Stacy Wolf Wakeletner, Marshall Bingham, Coral Bache, Jeremy Thomas, Erica Barlin, Amanda Newman, Alice Lynch, Alvin Agana, Rebecca Ray, Anne Nunnally, Sam Marshall, Brenda Jerrigan, JD Garcia, Madison Sweeney, Beth Ann Brockenbush, The Gone Cold Podcast, Marianne Murphy, Nicole Nyamella, Phoebe Southworth, Laura, Rory Williams, Pam Sullivan, Aaron Demir, and lastly, our deputies, LaDonna, Kathy Rambo, Anita Mitchell, Megan Lundgren, The Murder in My Family Podcast, Kelly Roberts, Gracie Bosch, Daniel Dole, Kristen Buford, Amy Davidson, and Margaret Phelps, The Murder and Such Podcast, Lillian, Cassie Colomer, M. Jane 1984, Leslie De La Paz, Marianne Connor, Strictly Homicide Podcast, The Moms and Murder Podcast, The Corpus Delicti Podcast, Karen Parker, The True Crime Fan Club Podcast, Alana Baker, Angela Johnson, Jessica M. O'Neill, Donald Brown, Jamie Burden, Julia Martinez, Carrie Simonton, Kathy Evale, Erica Kelly from Southern Fried True Crime Podcast. And that is it. We did it. If Yay! If- Thank you guys so much for your support. We really do appreciate it so much. And thanks for hanging around for the after show. After we read all those names. Yeah. Oh, so I hurt myself. I said sorry for some reason. After you punched a door. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, door. So thank you so much for all of your patience while we took our little break. Hopefully everything is back on track and we're, I'm feeling a lot better now. So that's very good. Uh, We're going to be back in a few more days to have your August Patreon episode out. And then we should be back next week with Shay's next episode. That's right. Working on it already. Chugging right along, baby. Yep. And your birthday's next month. It is. So get all of your tweets and memes ready. Start looking them up. Get some nice <laughs> bone lady memes ready. Yep. All right. Well, it's dinner time and I got to start editing this bad boy. So it's time to go away and we'll be back next week. Hopefully it won't be that long. We'll see you sooner than later. But always remember the crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. Adios. Bye. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian.